0: okay oh hello we have a uh, we have a cat friend today oh what's the cat's name
1: this is cash
0: cash i did not name him (laughs) all right very good yeah very nice yeah i have my i have my dog right behind me on the couch so if he he is sleeping right now so i don't know if he'll make an appearance but that's a very nice cat
1: (laughs) <laughs> i try he decided yeah. he was usually sitting off to the side in most uh-huh. of our lectures
0: oh and so he's he's decided so, to join yeah. um there you go it's german cool. theater is very thrilling to cash yeah we have um oliver and then we have who is right where is he I kind of see him there oh. yeah he's very tired he had a long day of of sitting on the couch um and then we're trying to get him to be friends with his cat sister, Pearl, which is going slowly. Uh, yeah. Understandable. Yeah, understandable. Yeah, it's it's a bit of a transition, but we're going for it. All right. Um, in terms of unrelated cat news, are there any questions about what's coming up? Okay, good. So just just to recap, we have um Nathan the Wise this week. We we'll also have to sometime find <laughs> so, find some time to squeeze in Kabuki um and I, we're doing I don't think we're doing I said last time we're doing Balinese theater. I think that's the week after. I think this week we're doing uh um, Chinese opera. Um but the main the kind of main anchor this week is Nathan the Wise. We'll f- maybe finish up on some stuff about the the country wife if anybody has any other comments also i've received questions about the directing project in terms of what is the uh what do you call the the uh, the template that is in the directing project folder there should be the three templates right there so just follow those do exactly what those do and you should be fine um Yeah. So that is, that's the, uh, the housekeeping. Um, I don't think I have anything else to to tell you in those, in those terms. Um, now for today and for what's coming on, we're going to be doing a little bit on as usual on Mondays, just move this back, uh, as we usually do on Mondays, a little bit more history, uh, the background that forms these plays and then we'll start on the play itself. Um, and then we'll go from go from there so a lot of it's going to be me again as, as is true on Monday and uh, yeah so before we do that though, before we jump in any finishing thoughts on the country life before we transition okay good um so now we're moving into moving about a little less than a century later, a little less than 100 years into the future, and we'll be talking about uh Germany. Um and just before we start, uh, I'll tell you a little bit about why I picked this play. I imagine and you know I hate to say this, but I imagine this is the play you guys enjoyed the least. Uh <laughs> Is that true, or, or does somebody have a, a better bottom that they... Okay, I, I'll i tell you why I picked it, um, just because I didn't I didn't pick it to specifically torture everybody. I understand the pros are a little bit awkward. Um, what we're going to be doing in the next three weeks really is looking at, at German theater uh, before, I think we're going back to America briefly after that. Um, and, what we see up to this point, okay, what we see up to this point is that um, while there have been artistic movements in theater and literature and whatnot, and there have been intellectual movements, we typically don't see artistic and intellectual movements going hand in hand that might be a little inaccurate for the, the Greeks. I mean, Aristotle is not just writing the poetics. He's also writing the metaphysics, the physics, he's writing on biology, on astronomy, etc. cetera. Um, but, you know, outside of that, when we look at uh, Shakespeare and the early modern period, Shakespeare is very much part of an, you know, artistic movement um, that was generated towards a popular audience and developed a particular type of theater. Um, when we look at Restoration comedy, when we look at the country wife, um, that is also a particular type of artistic movement um, that, which really is a part of, uh, generated towards uh, kind of a popular audience, a little more a little more reserved than than Shakespeare's audience. Um, but we haven't really seen art reflecting necessarily a specific intellectual movement um what we're going to start to see in the next few weeks really in germany and we could have done these in england as well but i thought you know we'll try try a different culture by going to germany is that the dramas we're going to be reading are going to be reflecting a greater intellectual movement that's going on um and that's why i picked uh Lessing's Nathan the Wise, because it is a, a drama of its time, a drama of the enlightenment. And what we see when we look at the syllabus in the next few weeks after after Nathan, we have Voidzeck, uh, this exciting play, um, which is uh, basically an acid trip. And it's also short, so you'll like it uh, for, for both those reasons. Um, and then after that, uh, The Prince of Homburg. Um, what what these three plays do is show how uh, show a an arc of development from Enlightenment thought as represented in artistic product to romantic stuff as represented in artistic product. Um, it's a movement into and out of the Enlightenment. Uh, and that's that's the kind of arc of development we're going to be doing in weeks nine ten and eleven um, before doing something entirely different in, in week twelve and yeah and that's why i picked nathan the wise i had originally flirted with doing um goethe's faust first of all though i thought maybe people have read it already and wanted to do something new has anybody just just to uh to um to humor my suspicions has anybody actually read goethe's faust
1: i haven't read it but i saw it in um boston like at the boston opera it was really cool
0: oh okay you saw the uh okay cool all right so at least one person in the two classes uh one person i thought there would be like maybe more than that but um so that's one reason i think it's a little more familiar nathan the wise is less well known uh and Lessing, you know, uh, it's generally less well-known. Um, the other reason is that Faust is very much part, more part of the, the Romantic tradition. And so we're not really seeing enlightenment writing there, um, you know, so that's another reason. It sort of doesn't match the arc of development that I wanted to, to go for. Um, so just talking more about what this means what is what does enlightenment mean where does it come from we're all going to do that here we're going to do that today but i'll just ask you guys what what is your familiar with familiarity with the concept of the enlightenment um
1: I took a European history class uh, recently, um, and so the Enlightenment was kind of a big part of that. It it was basically um, a movement kind of away from religion necessarily and more focused on, I guess, like science and kind of exploring the relationship with the world around you, I guess.
0: Great. Yeah, I think that that's a good uh, summation of it, is what we see is there is um a questioning of tradition and religion is uh kind of traditionally established in in Europe uh it, it begins to change obviously with the rise of luther and the, the the protestant break um but the enlightenment maybe maybe we could think of it as a continuation of of luther or as even a severance from that but it is a kind of holding up to the light these old hoary traditions and seeing how to how else can we live and there is a stress on rationality, on empiricism um, on uh, in some cases political revolution uh, and on um, in some cases kind of political economy and things like that and so it sees itself as working out of the, the way the world has always been to progress society, to progress individuals into, uh, into a new, more reasoned world. And the consequences of this are um, generally thought of in two outputs. One is America, the other is the guillotine of France. And you could see that in in America we ha- uh, there's a, a constitutional tradition established on individual liberty rights etc um, in France there is a a sort of bloodbath that ends up killing the original proponents of the the French Revolution and ends up restoring first it first puts Napoleon as emperor, and then it literally restores the same monarchy family that it formally kicked out. Um, and so, when people talk about the Enlightenment, there is the the, the golden-eyed view of it, which tends to be our country, um, and there is also the uh, the critical or problematic view of the Enlightenment, which tends to be France. Uh, and those are kind of the two, the two outproducts of the uh, of the Enlightenment in terms of politics. What ends up happening in response to the Enlightenment at the artistic level is Romanticism. And does anybody know anything about Romanticism, either British or German variants, or just the term itself?
1: I mean, I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure that the term, like, romance itself is, like, because, like, and it,
0: it's sort of, like, similar to how, like, because they found all the old, like, Greek and Roman writings, so then it's, like, related to the Romans, I believe. Sure, that, that would be the source of the word, certainly, is is that they, um, they see themselves in some ways continuing that tradition or, or predicated off those those works Um, however by the time we get to 19th century late 18th century and the 19th century romanticism which pops up in two major places in um, in germany in a school called jena the university of jena which is in uh, conveniently enough the city of jena and in in england more broadly um, is that romanticism ends up being a response to the enlightenment that forwards kind of emotional responses and emotional subjectivity over this sort of objective rational discourse so central to Enlightenment thought. Um, and.
1: Oops, sorry to jump in. Um, wasn't there also like a huge um, kind of reinterest in nature as well? Kind of like a reevaluating relationships with nature kind of as um they were able to evaluate and all of that
0: yes so there yeah th- that's that's part of it certainly is that you'd see um instead of looking towards a, i don't know lo- looking towards philosophical texts you might look out towards nature and by looking at nature, looking at the natural world, um, it's not looking at the natural world in the way Rousseau does, where it's like, wouldn't it be better if if we, you know, dissolved political unities and, and return to nature? Instead, it's looking at nature as reflecting and highlighting the inner subjective experiences of the individual poet or artist. And so, you know, when Wordsworth looks at nature, his poetry is about the the internal workings of Wordsworth in response to the natural world Uh, and that becomes true of the the British tradition you know especially in the the first generation you see Wordsworth and Coleridge and and um kind of William Blake but William Blake is so weird that it's, it's hard to categorize him and then in in later traditions you especially see this with Keats um you know, and, and Keats even has, Keats even includes looking at other artworks and and contextualizing those artworks in terms of his own inner subjective experience. And so nature, nature becomes a way of, a way of prompting the, the you there, the inner emotional you. Yeah,
1: whenever um, I, what helps me is that whenever i think of romanticism i think of that one painting of the guy who's like standing on top of a mountain and there's like a forest in front of him that's super foggy yeah and he's kind of like staring out and pondering and i feel like that sums up you know romanticism yeah
0: yeah it's it's grand feeling right a lot i mean it can be delicate and i mean you you read keats keats is, is a very delicate poet um but there is this kind of sense of um of uh, of being kind of overwhelmed by the natural world that certainly is there and honestly that a lot of that comes out of the aesthetics of the enlightenment as well and um, it, it's one of these things where we talk about these categories and we put them into nice comfortable boxes and, and oftentimes those those nice comfortable boxes are, are somewhat illusory um, the the idea of the of nature of the sublime of nature this kind of overwhelming aspect that, um, that kind of almost conquers the individual, right? It's, it's, it's like looking up at Niagara Falls. It's just, it's beyond expression. You know, you sort of lose yourself to that artistic movement that, or or that not artistic movement, excuse me. you, You lose yourself to that moment in response to nature. Um, that is, that really starts in the enlightenment with people like, um, Edmund Burke, who, you know, we think of Edmund Burke as like the, the granddaddy of of conservatism. And really what Burke is, he starts as and continues through his life is an, an aesthetician And he's talking about those responses to art, which, you know, become those responses to nature. Um, and but I, I think that's a great point, Rachel, that that's sort of the the icon of romanticism is the uh is the man on the mountain and there's kind of smoky forest before him and, and rocks that are so enormous, you know, it's, it's these kind of romanticized landscapes too. It's almost like the landscape mirrors the, the chaos and beauty of the mind of, of that person. Okay. So, so that is kind of what's, (laughs) that was a lot. Uh, That's kind of what's going on here with, with the Enlightenment and Romanticism. It's a, a yin and yang, right? A, a push and pull between this kind of rational um, discourse that looks to dust off or examine or hold to light tradition. And then there's Romanticism, which, says, which responds against objectivity for kind of the, this romantic, heroic version of subjectivity, often drawn from nature. And this occurs as I said, you know, in, in England, and a lot of us are familiar with those poets like Wordsworth, uh Keats Byron Shelley, um Mary you know, in novels like Mary Shelley, Frankenstein is Frankenstein is like the quintessential romantic novel. It's a person who tries to uh tries to um conquer death through science but discovers uh you know this this but the, the response is is horror right you really can't conquer the natural world via science it, it will come back to bite you and kill your family members as, as what happens in Frankenstein um but that's kind of the setup for these next three weeks is Nathan the Wise um examining tradition uh and then um Wojtzec and and the Prince of Hamburg as being kind of more romantic. And Voitsek especially is going to be uh, particularly strange. And we might even say Wojtzec is a little post-romantic or, or doing some different things. Um, but let me start before I jump into the slideshow uh, and talk about Germany and all that. Uh, let's start with kind of opening... So Rachel posted the the link to the picture. So yeah, yeah, and it's German too. So that's that's very appropriate. Uh, but yeah, if people could see it in the chat box, Rachel just posted the picture, so you could uh, you could see what what she was talking about there. Um, but what I was going to say? Oh, anyway. Uh, Opening re- uh, responses to Nathan the Wise. What did people think of it?
1: It kind of gave me a headache. I'm not gonna <laughs> lie. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that it was. was that old English, or was it a mix of like German?
0: I think that, so that was published in 1781, the initial play. It was a closet drama, Nathan the Wise, but um, it was published in Germany in 1779. And so this was translated pretty quickly and brought over into England pretty quickly. It might be the roughness of the translation. Um, looking at other translations, I, I think it's probably just the roughness of the prose. This, this is not exactly Shakespeare uh it, it's not particularly elegant prose um but i agree there's a lot of times i had to stop and go back and reread because i you know started to uh uh skim um a lot of it uh but yeah so so the prose are, are the uh, the the actual writing is um not exactly elegant any other responses to it
1: i think it's okay I would just, mine's pretty not important, I guess, but I've seen it in a lot of older texts, and I really wonder why do the S's turn into S's?
0: Oh, because you you have um you have limited print options, right? So you have limited keys that you would use to put down and press. Uh, oh, so okay. you would yeah. So they're just kind of um multi purposing really the hard S's. Really to decipher. Oh Sometimes, yeah. Like when it's an S, when it's an S, and then I have to like go back reread the word and be like, okay, which one of those is that supposed to be an S? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's a pain. I, I, read a lot of stuff from that time period. So at this point, I, I, you know, it's, it's kind of second nature to me, but yeah, that is, I could, I could see that could be pretty annoying if, if you haven't, uh, if you haven't spent a lot of time with those works. Um, so yeah, so the, the printing stuff, that could be, that could be a little annoying, uh, though. If you look at like 17th century printing, um, it is a world better than that it pr- printing gets better and better pretty quickly in you know that hundred fifty year period um, Any responses to the the content of the play
1: yeah I, I was gonna say it was like rough to get through, but I overall I, I feel like I liked the message I feel like it was about like religious tolerance and you know letting people believe in what they want to believe in and not spreading hatred because of religious intolerance and i i really like that
0: yeah oh good yeah it's it has it's a message play right it has a it has a message uh and it's it's interesting because we've the last time i think we've got that maybe the only other time we've got that was with every man right which is this distinctly the most distinctly religious work we've we've looked at even though it's it's produced and probably written by uh, secular people by lay people and yet even though this this play looks to um looks to talk about issues in a secular way it still sort of operates more like the morality play than possibly any other play that that we've read any other responses So what I think we'll do now is is do a little back history, um, and look at the history of Germany, a little bit at Lessing, and a lot at, uh, and a little bit at the German Enlightenment as well, and then we'll jump into the play itself. Okay. So, um, what you have through most of german history at this time is a uh, from uh, this time um, being vague starting with the fall of rome what you end up seeing in in germany in the sixth century is the build-up of what becomes the holy roman emperor it starts with clovis the first who establishes the what's known as the merovingian dynasty um and later that ends up becoming the carolingian dynasty named after charlemagne you know, Charles, Charles the Great, Charlemagne, who establishes what later becomes the Holy Roman Empire. We've mentioned the Holy Roman Empire before in this class. They are that large confederacy of kingdoms in um, Germany, and they were sort of a check on the papal power. They were the other large Catholic power in Europe at that time however north of the uh north of the holy roman empire in the area that you can see in this map we have um, areas that are independent german-speaking areas that are independent of the holy roman empire and this is um family territory um, which became known as brandenburg Uh, margravate of brandenburg was what that region was called because the Margate was the person who ruled it. And then also you have what became later known as Prussia. Now the major power here was Poland in the 16th century. And there was a war between these kind of loose Confederate Germans, um, coming out of of Brandenburg and places like that and Poland, 1525, they have the treaty of Krakow and it, it ends that, uh, and ends that war, uh, Albert, who is part of the Hohenzollern family, uh, Hohenzollern family. Um, he is, um, he is now crowned the, uh, Duke of Prussia. So Albert I is now ruling over, um, Prussia and Brandenburg. Um, and over time, they unify and become Brandenburg-Prussia. And you can see the the darker area is Brandenburg, and the lighter area is those, those territories added on. And there's Albert, who's a little cross-eyed in that picture, and then there's the Prussian flag. Okay, so this keeps going on, and you can see here is how Prussia expands in the early 18th century. So 1657, Prussia becomes a free feudal obligation, um, becomes free of feudal obligations to the Swedish under the guidance of elector Frederick William I. So uh, Frederick Wilhelm, um, he had obligations because he wasn't a king, right? He was just a uh, a kind of a lower level person who controlled these different areas, a duke or a Margate. He had the uh, these obligations to was one of the biggest powers in the north which was Sweden, and they eventually negotiate a a freedom from that Um, and that allows the the brandenburg prussian territory to kind of build in power Um, frederick william's son uh, frederick iii declares prussia to be a kingdom and crowned himself king frederick i and this is the point in history known as Too Many Fredericks. And as king, he ruffles the feathers of the Holy Roman Emperor, Leopold. Um, now, Leopold never controlled Brandenburg Prussia. So there's no, there's no uh, justification for telling Frederick he can't be king. But what he does say is that Frederick is king in Prussia, not king of Prussia. And this um, this rhetorical sleight of hand kind of leaves things off peacefully. But what you could see here is the kind of territories of Brandenburg and Prussia. They're still not connected. You have Poland in between them here. So you have Sweden above them kind of controlling things. And then below you have Poland literally between the major the major lands of this this now kingdom um however they're sort of uh giving themselves autonomy from these different power sources and so this is a map of the holy roman empire in 1718 just to give you an idea of how diverse it is often we talk about the holy roman empire as a single unit this really isn't quite right it is a grouping of different kingdoms electorates margates um, and and things like that uh under a single catholic emperor you could see like france poland the netherlands these are unified kingdoms with a unified people Um, but italy and germany aren't Right, they are just a ton of it's a mess. And at one point you have about five hundred different kingdoms. And Germany doesn't really become Germany the nation until the eighteen seventies. Uh and here's a picture of Frederick I. Um, not quite as cross eyed as Albert. So seventeen thirteen Frederick Wilhelm I took control and created uh, the bureaucracy and a standing army of about two hundred thousand people. Um so two hundred thousand is a lot. It's an enormous amount. Uh and for a, a state that is that big also, it became the, the famous quote about it was Prussia is not a state with an army, but an army with a state. Um so in 1740, his son, Frederick II, takes control of uh Prussia Branden- uh, Brandenburg, Prussia. Um and he unlike his father is interested in the arts and he becomes a major patron of the arts then he starts funding the arts and we start to see the kind of the building of german language theater and and things like that Um, meanwhile he is still a, a person with a large army and he decides to use it and so he crosses the border into seleucia which was a province of the Austria of Austria-Hungary and you can see here um Austria-Hungary is is down here they were I think they were united by this point they unite and break apart um but Seleucia which is in pink in this map um that's an area he marches in he acquires this inspires three wars which finish up by 1756 and allow Prussia which is more and more called Prussia, to hold that area in Seleucia. Um, Now we remember this area, which in this map is now in pink. If we looked at this map here, the the white part, that's Poland. Poland is in between Prussia and Brandenburg. Um, Oops. In 1772, the same Frederick, he uh, partitions part of Poland and is able to unite brandenburg and prussia and so now by 1772 by the time lessing is writing you have a major power in prussia in the north and it's unified right so you have the holy roman empire which really isn't unified it's kind of a collection of of unities right you know a collection of almost like city-states except they're not city-states they're they're larger than that and then outside of that you have a lot of money um and a very strong army and a unified kingdom in the north which is Prussia and furthermore Frederick II was what is known as an enlightened monarch Um, I don't know if anybody knows that that term but that became a very famous term for different rulers in Europe in the 18th century uh, people who were interested and invested in bringing in um, bringing in rulers from all over uh excuse me rulers who are interested in bringing in philosophers from all over the world into their court uh yeah and and so uh catherine the great in russia was another example of this of somebody who you know would would bring like voltaire to court and rousseau and very often the, the rulers were friends with these philosophers um and very often, they tried to, the, the rulers tried to engage some policy that was sympathetic towards the philosopher's position. Uh, and sometimes that worked, sometimes it didn't. Um, you know, so like with Catherine the Great, she was in Russia from 1762 to 96. Um, she reformed the states and the cities and also imported education into the land. Uh, she created an enormous art collection and opened it up to the public. Um, you know, Catherine the Great also brought uh, Diderot, Denis Diderot, who was a the writer of the first encyclopedia. Um, and then she also brought economists to court and created these kind of open forums. Um, in the, the Habsburg Empress, Marisa Teresa, uh, she... Would actually send soldiers to different housing units, um, and they would—they weren't there to to harm the the different people who were living in the in the Habsburg Kingdom, but to listen to their complaints and take down reports on individuals' health and well-being. Um, and so you saw that with a number of the, these monarchs going on at this time. They were listening to the philosophers and putting in uh, policies that were to be helpful. Uh, We can make a lot of this. Very often the policies helped um, empower lower-level aristocrats who had then more power over their serfs. So, you know, very often a lot of this Enlightenment stuff was still airy, was still in the head uh, and in the court. But that's what was going on. And Frederick II was part of this this cast of Enlightenment rulers, um, and he opened the borders to oppressed people, people he saw as oppressed, who you know flooded in, and um, and he tried to uh, offer toleration for for people of different stripes and different religious different religious backgrounds, and so Frederick really was trying to, at least rhetorically demonstrate, uh, a tolerant empire. Um, he also created the, uh, the, one of the largest state run education systems, um, which he thought would be good that people had knowledge, but it also helped people to become better soldiers. Actually, Horace Mann, one of the, the grandfathers of the American education system saw the Prussian system as the model for, um, for the education system in America. And so things like the bell that rings and sends you from class to class, that's taken from this Frederick II state-run education system. Um, And so the the Prussian education system became a model even into the 20th century for other countries. Okay, the Enlightenment here. So we talked a little bit about this, so we'll maybe skim a little bit. old ideas the the enlightenment was you know a movement um really think late 17th century through the 18th century uh typically in scotland and in germany um and german and scottish variants are, are very distinct however they tend to be going into one direction which is old ideas need to be held up to the light of reason in order to see if those ideas still applied All right so one of those big things would be would be religion it might be um you know things like humility or uh or um uh uh, generosity or not expending money one example would be um bernard mendeville who was a a dutch writer dutch philosopher and poet who uh in his work the fable of the bees of around 1720 he wrote it he went he went from holland to england and he wrote it there and and updated it throughout his life um his idea with that was that uh expending money on uh consumerist items and luxury items was really good for the economy so people should do it and that was the type of thing that was going on right was you would never see somebody in the middle ages going yeah, spend a lot of money on gold. That's wonderful. That's good for everyone. But, uh, Mandeville was, was making that argument. Um, you know, you get people like Adam Smith, who was making the argument that, uh, you know, selfish concerns create a society that's good for all. Um, this is not an old idea. That's a fairly new one, though to say Adam Smith came up with it all on his own is is not Exactly accurate, but you know, still the, the general theme is that um, when you declare something like that in a major text, you're holding up this old idea and saying, "Let's see if this really makes sense. Let's explore this." Um, in England, how this cashes out in, in political discourse is one of the more important publications. Uh, two treatises on government by John Locke and uh 1694 1695 and the first treatise no one reads it's it's um you know about kind of disproving the divine right of kings but the second treatise is um looks at the rights of individuals in a polity coming from their inherent humanity and not from the ruler. We call this a natural rights view of government. It is you're endowed to life, liberty, and property, as Locke writes, because of your humanity, because you are born human. Um, Positive law rights would be you have rights because the king says you have rights, and Locke is inverting that structure. Um, And there's arguments as to how many people actually read Locke or read this this thing from Locke, Um, but enough people read it for it to become a foundational philosophy to the american the american experiment okay. another example in france uh, montesquieu writes the persian letters which examines french customs from a tic- fictitious outside perspective perspective not prospective um <laughs> and that's kind of like this idea of different cultures of different values and um there isn't an essential or universally good value that the, you know you have kind of outsidery or different perspectives there. Um, you also have Voltaire publishes Candide in 1755, 1759, critical of the old world society. What happens with Voltaire and, and Candide is there was an earthquake in Lisbon before he, he wrote this. And up to that point, natural, natural disasters had been seen as uh, the retribution of God upon the the sinner. The most famous example of this is the 14th century's Black Plague, which was often seen as, the, you know, the world has become corrupt and God is doing this. However, with the Lisbon earthquake, the earthquake basically destroyed a bunch of churches and didn't destroy a bunch of brothels. And so the, <laughs> the question becomes, well, if God is punishing the wicked, why did he destroy all the churches but not the brothels? And this sort of reflection that uh, the natural world is not an engine by which God exercises his motives um, becomes expressed by a number of philosophers, including Voltaire. We also, again, we mentioned him before, Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Um, Society is anti-natural. He wants to return to a state of nature, kind of. I mean, he he says a number of things, Um, but yeah, he's another, he's another, um, famous person french language he's from switzerland though so he's part of that whole uh that whole mess on the map we saw uh what's popping up thanks to the alignment is these things called salons which occur in in really in france um, but also occur in a different way in england in france a lot of these salons were kind of run by women and what they would do is they would bring the latest philosopher uh into their circle to discuss his work they would also it was a big place to look at fashion items and so you'd see the latest dress and the latest clothing um there wasn't this you know this disconnect from these new material comforts and the intelligentsia like you could go to the salon and see the latest fashion but also the latest writing and thought in england they had these things called coffee houses which are are kind of exactly what they sound like the places where you would buy coffee which was becoming um, less and less expensive with eastern trading routes opening up Uh, but in the coffee houses you would be able to um, discuss philosophy as well very often books and the latest newspapers could be found there and people could then you know you probably wouldn't have enough money for your own book or or newspaper very often well maybe not newspaper but um, you know the, the newspapers would be there different people can read them they could discuss the ideas in there while drinking coffee um, also while buying stocks in the stock market, stock, stocks were often sold in these coffee houses in some areas so yeah it's it was a it's a different world uh, but that's what was going on in England and if anybody's ever heard of the term the public sphere that comes from a 20th 21st century century philosopher Jurgen Habermas, and he looks at the source of the public sphere as being these coffee houses, because it's where the public was formulating their own ideas about things. Um, so, science, political philosophy become important, economic philosophy becomes important, and and France and England. Okay, Ah, Lessing, so. After the Thirty Years' War, remember the Thirty Years' War ended in 1648. It was a, mostly a religious war between Protestants and Catholics, so it's not that neat. Um, but the countryside was devastated in, in German-language areas. And what you start to see is wandering clown troops. The most famous type of clown was known as Hansvest or John Sausage. Um, and there's a, a picture of him, of uh, an actor playing Hans West. And basically Hans West would eat a bunch of food, get drunk, and fall down, and people in German language areas loved this. This was their Netflix. They couldn't get enough of this guy getting drunk and falling down. Um, however, you know, certain more serious troops began to emerge. Uh, the Neubers, um they, in order to show their seriousness, uh, broke from the Hans tradition by burning him in effigy. However, he was so popular, they had to bring him back. Um, and now we see, you know, maybe some organization here in, in Prussia. And uh, here's the story of uh, Gotthold Ephraim Lessing, born in 1729, born in Saxony. So he's you know, right in the neighbor of, of Prussia. Uh, he's the first major German language playwright, and also the f- world's first dramaturg, um, which is a person who Sort of examines plays and writers for a theater. Kind of does the critical intellectual work for a, a theater company. He takes a master's degree at Wittenberg, which is uh, where Martin Luther famously nailed his 95 theses up. Um, and he worked for a time for General Tancin. I think I'm saying it during the Seven Years' War. The Seven Years' War was really the, the Europe's first world war, though. World War I and II have a a monopoly on that title, so we just call it the Seven Years' War. Um, We know it in America as the French and Indian War. The French and Indian War was the part of the Seven Years' War that occurred here. Um, And it looks like Lessing worked for the bureaucracy in handling that for Prussia. Um, 1767, he leaves that. He starts to work for the Hamburg National Theater, the first real major theater, uh, established theater, and German language theater. Um, He works as a critic of plays and playwrights, that is, as a dramaturge. His work, he compiles together in 101 short essays that becomes published known as the Hamburg Dramaturgy. Uh, A lot of these essays looked at acting and how external circumstances affected performance and how theater may be used to advance social ideas. So if you wanted to let's say do a play about religious tolerance uh you know an act or you wanted to promote religious tolerance excuse me then a play and performers can be a great way to do that you can kind of push out your ideas into the world about about acting uh, uh, excuse me about enlightenment ideas and theater can be a way of promoting enlightenment ideas um this I this notion of the theater as being a place to promote ideas instead of necessarily emotions, though Lessing wouldn't see it as a contrast, continues into the work of Brecht. And there's a version of, there's a Brechtian version of this play that uh, the Berliner Ensemble, the major theater in, in Berlin, did, I think in... 2013 their 2013 2014 season so a number of years ago in which they staged this play in a brechtian style and and brecht we talked about I th- ooh, last week or two weeks ago from the uh the brooks book on on the empty space um and so we could see this kind of tradition of um of social engagement in the theater that Brecht inherits, actually going back to Lessing, going back to a very different type of writer, um, but still with those kind of intentions. Okay, so stop sharing there. All right, oh wow, it one ten already. Jeez, we we didn't get to talk about the play at all. Um, Well, we we will talk about the play, talk about the play on Wednesday. So, you know, make sure you've, you've finished it by Wednesday. Um, any other comments or questions before we go? All right, good. Um, then that is it, I'll let you guys go and I'll stay here on uh, on this meeting if anybody has any questions. All right, thank you. Thank
1: you.